0: Well, I don't know if you've, uh, been able to ever witness this event in your life, but recently I've been interested in metalworking. Not, I'm not metalworking myself. I'm not a blacksmith or a, a, swordsmith as they call it, but I am interested in a show that's called Forged by Fire. And, uh, I guess it's just one of those trades that um, I would really enjoy learning just because it seems like a lot of fun, but like where do you pick that up? You know, is that the YMCA? They have like a metalworking class? I'm not sure. Um, But this is a contest like none other. It's not like survival. It's not like um, Wheel of Fortune. Um, it's, It's not necessarily testing the knowledge. It's testing strength and it's testing technique. These men um, are they 're in a race, and they are taking um, a very raw piece of steel and they 're heating that steel up to potentially two thousand degrees Fahrenheit and then they begin to shape that piece of raw steel into something very beautiful um, not necessarily a big sword or, or knife guy. <laughs> But just to see the 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 power and yet the finesse and the beauty that comes out of that as they hammer and uh, inflict power upon this piece of steel to see at the end um, this work of art, and so my question this morning is, do you feel that way in the Christian life like this this piece of steel that's been heated to this really hot temperature, and then just beaten over and over and over again? Do you feel that way? I would guess that some of us do, that the Christian life oftentimes feels like we are that piece of metal heated to the point of complete and total pliability, and then we are beginning to be fashioned and molded from that, and we don't realize that we still feel like steel, we still feel uh, maybe raw from that, and yet in the end, we understand because of what scripture teaches us that it is actually God that is like that great blacksmith that is doing the work in our life, shaping and molding us to do something and to look like his son Jesus. It's probably a message more suited for some other country besides America, where they wake up day by day and they are persecuted in such a way that they feel um, they feel the rawness and they feel the truth of such persecution. But the truth is, is that we all have um, those moments, those seasons, those uh, testimonies of suffering and trial in our life. A couple weeks ago, I read this quote from Joni Erickson Tata, a woman who at 17 years old was paralyzed from a diving accident and now for 50 years has been a paraplegic, glorifying the Lord Jesus in the midst of her suffering. And she writes these, these words. She says, these afflictions of mine, this very season of multiplied pain is the background against which God has commanded me to show forth his praise. It's it's also that, that thing that I am reckoned to as, quote, good and acceptable and a perfect, end quote, according to Romans 12. God bids me that I not only seek to accept it, but to embrace it, knowing full well that somewhere way down deep in a secret place that I have yet to see lies my highest good. Maybe you feel this morning like the pain and the suffering that Joni Erickson Tata feels day by day. And so let us be encouraged that God promises that those pains and those sufferings and those trials. And as we will talk about today, those persecutions are a part of the Christian life. They're not a part of the Christian life for some. They're a part of the Christian life for every Christian, every believer, every one of us will go through a hammering only to become shaped and molded into the image of Christ in the end. In other words, and we'll talk about this today, the Christian life is not an easy road. Matter of fact, we see that as we read earlier in Acts chapter 8, a great example in, this, in, the, in the life of Simon Magnus of a man who would have never made it in the Christian life because he didn't truly have belief. He didn't truly believe in the Lord Jesus and cling to him with every bit of energy. He, he just wanted the Holy Spirit and, and the power for financial gain and, and social prestige. but instead as we're reminded in 1st Peter chapter 1 that salvation is given to us that it is kept in heaven for us verse 5 in 1st Peter 1 who by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, that you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it te- it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, as precious As gold might be, it melts under intense heat. And yet by God's grace and his power, you will not melt away. You will be kept by God's amazing grace through your suffering and your pain. Through the difficulties and the trials of this world. This is the message of Jesus to us this morning. This is the message of Jesus to his apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Last week, we talked about the call to mission, the call that God sends us to go out. And and what a great God that he prepares us for not only the good, but for the bad. That he doesn't just allow us to see the the rose petals of life, but that he allows us to see that we will go through suffering, and yet he is with us every step of the way, providing for us, comforting us, guiding us, and directing us as the great shepherd does for his sheep. And so Jesus sends out his disciples, instructing them on how to live out their call to mission how we go and, and, and spread the gospel to all nations, and in doing so, we trust in His sovereignty. He gave out the, the strategy last week of, of, of looking for places of welcome and of reception for kingdom um, work and ministry, to look for those places, to be prepared not overly prepared that we're not trusting in God and yet being prepared, knowing that he calls us to equip ourselves for the, uh, and, and being able to give defense for the hope that was, is within us. And yet through the way, we, we trust that his work is going to be accomplished, that his sovereignty is at work in the midst of our faithfulness and obedience to take the call. And so in chapter 10 of Matthew, in verse 16, he begins to transition from this kind of immediate calling on mission to a more broader promise and instruction on persecution. Read with me in chapter 10, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than any sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring, not peace, but a sword will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who sent uh, receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In closing with his sermon today, Jesus instructs us on what it means to live in Christ-centered rejection. I want to look at five lessons today. We could probably draw 45 lessons out of this large amount of scripture. Five lessons today. Number one, fearing God, not fearing man. We are called to be people who fear God, not to be afraid of men. Jesus is sending these men out saying, be bold, be courageous. You have someone to fear, but it is not the fear of men. It is not fearing what they will do to you. It was not, it's not fearing how they will hurt your body or destroy your families. You have someone to to fear and that is God Almighty. In verse 16, he says, as transition, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. It's not difficult to see the, the immediate Warning that God or that Jesus gives his apostles here. You are the sheep and you are going out in the world in the midst of people who want to devour you. These are your enemies. These are the ones that do not want to just hurt you. They want to kill you. And so in the midst of such aggression, in the midst of such distress, he says, be wise as snakes and innocent as doves. Now, in our culture, and probably most cultures, we don't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to compare ourselves to snakes. Snakes to us incite fear because of their ability to inflict such harm. But snakes are very Intelligent. And I think here what he's teaching his disciples is that wisdom comes as we live as snakes live in the world. Snakes are wise in the sense that they camouflage themselves to accomplish their survival. Snakes are wise so they don't necessarily go pick a fight. But they can defend themselves. Christians are called to live in such a a way that we are wise in the midst specifically of persecution. I mean, imagine for the second the knowing and understanding the awareness of your environment so that you can be the most effective for Christian ministry specifically in the context of persecution. I mean... What obstacles do we really face as Christians today when it comes to ministry? In comparison to the world, there are very few obstacles. Years ago, I had a friend that was a missionary in Southeast Asia, and he told me that in the midst of the congregation that he worshiped in, his process of going to church every day in this one or two-bedroom apartment on the fourth floor was that he would travel, he would backtrack two or three streets so that no one from the government was following him, he would go up the flight of stairs and he would come down two flights of stairs, he would go back up another couple flights and then he would go down and this was the process that they took because they were trying to be wise. They didn't want their church to be discovered because they could be more effective in a, in a wise sense of church ministry by being secretive in a communist government than to go and slap a billboard on the side of a building saying, come to our fellowship on the fourth floor, beat us and put us in prison. That's not very effective. Jesus is not calling Christians to be fearful. Matter of fact, he's saying, don't be afraid. Trust in the sovereignty of God. You will be persecuted and you will be dragged before the courts and the synagogues and even governors and kings. But in a sense, before those things happen and and as they are happening, be wise in the way that you minister. He also says, be innocent as doves calling believers to not be people that incite violence or incite recklessness in our ministry. We can stand for causes that are good and righteous without being violent and filled with hate and anger. We're to be wise and innocent William William Hendrickson says that we are to have insight into the nature of one's surroundings, both personal and material. We must have sanctified common sense, wisdom to do the right thing at the right time, and place in the right manner a serious attempt always to achieve the highest goal. And yet D.A. Carson gives a warning and says that we should be cautious and suspicious and cunning yet without becoming paranoid, elusive, and fearful. That's That's a thin line, a balance there. And yet in the wisdom of God Almighty, he is showing us and commanding us to live this way because he knows the persecution is coming. He's warning us because it, it is very, his very plan for us to, to be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ by those very trials and suffering and persecutions. And so our fear of man, our fear of man is subsided when we realize that what can they really do to us we can kill the body can destroy our family we can go through an intense pain and yet we find our value in Christ someone can maim you to the point of un, being unrecognized by your family and yet you have value and dignity not in what your face looks like but in your 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 identity in Christ And you can still, with the abilities that you're given, whether you're paralyzed in a wheelchair, or you're, you're inflicted with pain day by day, or you've been beaten so much that people can't even recognize who you are, if you still have the energy and you still have the ability, you proclaim Christ on this earth until your life is over. And so they are encouraged, these apostles, In verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. It's a contrast of insignificance with the significant. A penny in this day was one sixteenth of a day's wage. So you are buying two insignificant birds with an insignificant amount of money. And we are reminded that in that insignificance, God is involved in providing and showing care and value in that insignificance So be and understand that in your identity with Christ, you are more significant than you even realize. You are more valuable than you can possibly, than your sinful flesh allows you to see to God. We look in the mirror and we see pain and we see, we have memories of failures and only by going back to God's word, by the power of his spirit, does he remind us that we are significant, that we are made in the image of God, that if we believe in Christ, we are reconciled back to God. And that he wants to use us for his mission. So root your, fo- your foundation and your identity in him alone. And think about it. Think about these early Christians in Christian history that were dragged to the Colosseum. And before 80, or they say, fifty to 80,000 Romans in the Colosseum, they were led out into the middle and they opened the doors of the lion's cages. And for amusement and entertainment, Christians were mauled to death at the applause of these people. is your identity in Christ. Are you fearing him who can kill both the body and the soul? Do you have such a holy fear and awe of him that it doesn't matter what man can do to us? And not only do you fear him, but you should trust in him. We could say that those are synonymous terms. We we could say that those are are, are simply, when we fear God, we are trusting in him. But I want to make the comparison from Matthew 10, 19, and 20, that as we fear him and as we trust in him, we should turn away from trusting in ourselves. Not only should we fear God and not man, but we should trust in in God and not ourselves, not in our ability. Matthew 10, verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. That sounds strange. Well, it is me speaking. Jesus is not trying to redefine what what speaking is. He's, He's trying to show us that the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives as believers in Christ that we are supplied what we need in the face of trial and suffering and persecution that as we are dragged before governors and rulers and Gentiles we'll be able to preach so we must put Our trust in God, trust in his character, in his goodness, in his holiness. God, I I can't reason in my mind right now why being in prison is good, but I trust you to know that you have and are working goodness through this difficulty in my life. A great example, an illustration of this trust found in the New Testament when Peter is called by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 to get out of the boat and to walk upon the water in the storm. If you'll remember, the the disciples are fishing and a storm comes. Jesus at this point is not with them and then all of a sudden they see this this figure walking on the water in the middle of the storm. And it's the Lord Jesus. I love this because it's it's not Jesus walking on calm water, it's Jesus walking on the water in the storm. And the storm I think is very important for Peter's fear. Not that you know Peter was just brave enough to walk on calm water, But it was in the midst of, in Matthew chapter 14, as Peter is called out of the boat and he is walking on the water, the Bible says that he recognizes the waves and the storm. And in recognizing the waves and the storm, his faith in Christ transforms or transfers back to his fear of the circumstances. So he begins in a minute To stop trusting in God and begins to trust in his own ability to walk upon liquid. And so, like many prayers, as we go through trial and suffering, we pray, God, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot possibly. Live through this experience. I don't have enough emotional sanity. I don't have enough physical strength. I cannot endure this much pain. And yet God empowers us to get through those things by his grace. And how does he do that? He does it through a lot of ways. Here in this passage, we're reminded that it's the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So when God sends, when the Father sends Jesus, and then Jesus says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, we understand that the Holy Spirit is not the B-squad helper of the world. He's not the the minor league team of power and sustenance for our Christian life. He is equally God. He is the third person of the Godhead. So that means that we can trust in him and that he empowers us and that his power is equal. We can pray to the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be afraid to pray to the third person of the Godhead because he is the one who helps us pray as the scriptures teach us. John fourteen we're reminded it's this Holy Spirit whom the Father sends in, in Jesus' name that will teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Understand that the Holy Spirit does not work magic in us. It's not magic. The Holy Spirit works through many means. He works through the church where other people surrounding you are full of the Holy Spirit and they're being guided and directed by the commands of God's word by the teachings and the truths that they've been raised and and hidden deep in their heart. And so they are being compelled by the Holy Spirit to obey those words, to bear those burdens, to confess those sins, to reconcile, to be mediators in, in conflict, to be those who pray for those who are hurting. The Holy Spirit works through the church in that way. That's kind of a corporate way. And then personally, the Holy Spirit works in many ways. He, he convicts us of sin. He illuminates God's word. He equips us and, and empowers us in ways I don't even think we understand. And that doesn't mean that in that mystery of the Holy Spirit, we create and, and label those things. Because we have to go with what God's word teaches us. But we look back in hindsight of the, of the things that we have experienced. And if we are going to give God glory. We have to give God glory to say somehow in some way. He sustained me and he kept me in the midst of that storm. And we must be willing to admit that his work in us is a complete miracle. So we have trust or fearing God and not man, tr- trusting in God, not ourselves. We're also to, we're called to have faithful endurance and not to fall away. Verse 21, it says, Brothers will deliver, over, uh, will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. but the one who doors, endures to the end will be saved. It's unlikely that the apostles... Face this type of persecution while Jesus was on the earth. We don't have a record of that type of activity. We don't see the family of these apostles dragging them and killing them. But we do see that in the early church. And we have seen that throughout the history of the expansion of the church in this world that there's such a divide between the power of the gospel and the evil of this world that it literally leads families to divide and kill one another. And this shouldn't surprise us. We watched this type of civil war happen in our own country over things like slavery and commerce. So clearly, on a much greater level, the Holy Spirit... Empowers us to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And in the midst of that, it will lead to such division in our families. That even our families may want to kill us. I read a story of a young Muslim lady that converted to Christ in her own hometown. And this young lady was immediately kicked out of her home. She was ostracized from the community. She was young and they wouldn't feed her. She couldn't even go to the well in the city and get water. But you know what her parents wanted to do? And what were they, they were encouraged to do. They were encouraged to kill her. It happens all the time. When a family that's Muslim sees another family member convert to Christianity, there's such an, a divide of, of, of darkness and light that they see that person as infidel and is not worthy to live. And so the, the command for us then is that we must endure to the end. The one who endures the sufferings of family division, family persecution, public persecution, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Many people throughout the history of the church have taken this passage to to promote the theology that you can lose your salvation. They'll say, see, see, Only the people who don't fall away from the faith have had the strength to the in the end to believe in the Lord Jesus. They could have fallen away, but they were faithful. That same theology is tied back to the idea that they came to Jesus in their own strength. Because you can't divorce those two things. If you believe in a theology that you come to Jesus on your own terms and in your own power, then you must believe that you keep yourself until the end. But as we here at Redemption promote and teach and can clearly and gladly show you in Scripture that no one is good, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands God. The Bible says that our mouths are are open graves, that we're people that, that before Christ, we live in such a way that we are just vile enemies of him. And that it's only by the power of the gospel where we believe in the Lord Jesus. And we believe because he has drawn us to himself by his power and his grace. Not because of some condition within us. And if he is going to do that by his power and his grace to save us. And he is by his power and grace sanctifying us. By all means by his power and grace he is going to keep us. There is no dysfunction in the work of God throughout our Christian life. And that would be a dysfunctional thought. It would be irregular to think that by his power, he saves us and draws us to himself in spite of our wretchedness, that he continues to change us, but then we fall away by our own power. That's irregular. It's illogical. So the one who endures to the end, although we are commanded to endure, we also understand that if we are truly God's people, if we are truly saved by his grace, we will endure to the end. And so the command is this. Endure. And yet we know... That he who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It's the best guarantee you'll ever receive. And because you've been called by God and, and you are sent out by God. Being someone who is kept by God. Then you will be the one who suffers for his name. You will face persecution because of the name of Jesus. You are engrafted to him. You are abiding in him. And as Jesus says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, then they will, uh, how much more will they have maligned those of his household? It's like the idea of, of, of terrorists and, and enemies of, of people throughout this world that will kidnap children just to get at the person, the, the father or the mother of that child, just to, to, to gain some leverage over them. And so we must have a a clear understanding that in our work on mission and and the, the persecution that we face, we are being attacked and persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ because Satan doesn't really want to attack us. He wants to attack Christ. He's failed miserably and he's doing whatever he can to disrupt and destroy the work of God in this world. So what about those that fall away? Well, the comforting thing is, is that if people have fallen away, we know that there's still time if they're alive. There's still time to believe. They fell away because they never really possessed anything in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to use in terminology like that is not that they reached salvation and fell off the ship, is that they missed the ship as it was leaving, but there's still a way for them to trust in Christ. There's still if they have time left in this world, they can still believe in him. Their opportunity of salvation is not over. I love Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. Number four. As we go out on mission, we should understand the great cost of the gospel, of the Christian life, and that it is not an easy road. Jesus just lays it out for him. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to this earth, verse 34. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loses son or daughter, or whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm amazed and challenged at how many times the Lord Jesus talks about the family in this passage. Not just in the section I just read, in the promise of persecution. Because folks, we hold so tightly to our families and and for good reason. We hold so tightly to our families and, 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 and sometimes it's our very families, as I said, that will persecute us. It's our very families are the ones that cause us the most difficulty and the most trouble. And we have to understand that the gospel is a divisive truth, it will bring opposition. And as the church, at times, we live in a fairy tale land when we see the gospel divide our families and we see the truth of the gospel light contrasted on the darkness of our very sons and daughters and children and parents and we make excuses for them. We make excuses because we want to hold so dearly to the idea that they will be in heaven even though they show no fruit in their life that the Spirit of God lives within them. We must stop it. We must be honest and understand that the gospel divides families. We must look at those people in our families that do not love and walk with the Lord Jesus, and we must look at them as our mission field. Instead of pretending that they're saved because they walked an aisle at seven and they never stepped foot in a church again, we are lying to ourselves. And I say that with the the heaviest heart for my own family. For a brother who does not know the Lord. For cousins who defy his name. And the cost of following Christ is not easy. Jesus says that the the gospel that he brings does not bring peace, which sounds counterproductive to the fact that Jesus is the prince of peace. But the truth is, is Jesus is not going against what, what is clearly true in him. Jesus is the bringer of peace into this world. He is bringing, he is mending together the very brokenness and the fractured uh, spirituality of this society. This world is so full of brokenness and as the gospel penetrates that brokenness, Jesus Christ is bringing peace to the soul of these people. He is bringing peace and redemption where there was brokenness and suffering and pain. That one day he will come again and he will bring peace to this earth. The very earth that is broken and fractured because of sin. But the peace that he is not bringing oftentimes is physical peace. The gospel penetrates a city. It causes disruption. In the New Testament, new early church, as Paul and Barnabas were going out preaching the gospel and there was great repentance in the city of Ephesus, it caused an uproar because commerce was disrupted and destroyed. That's the divisiveness of the gospel. Jesus preached and his family thought he was insane until they truly came to believe in him. That's divisiveness in the gospel. And so if you believe and trust in Christ, there is a great cost. You don't pay to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus, but you will pay a heavy price as you believe in him. You will be called to die to yourself, which is why Jesus calls us to take up his cross and follow him. He's not telling us to die on a cross. To pay for the atonement of our sins. He's using the cross as a picture. To demonstrate what it means. To sacrifice oneself. The Christian life is such a difficult road. It's not an easy road. That we are called daily to die to ourself. That if we are seeking to find the life of fulfillment, of pleasure, then we will lose our life. We will drown in the wrath of God against our sin. But if we are willing to deny ourselves and take up the cross of, of suffering and sacrifice, then we have already found. The grace of God. And let me just say, as a side note, what a great lesson for the importance of the church family. I mean, if you think about it, as the church exists in this world, it is a refuge of broken families. It is like the critical care unit of a bunch of soldiers that have gone out and in the midst of war, their very brothers in arms have turned on each other and began shooting each other. And the church is like the triage unit where we all come back together and we we mend each other's wounds and we care for one another. And the beauty of this is, is that You can get on a plane and and you can fly across the world and you will not have a physical family there. You will be a stranger in a strange land. No one there to love you and care for you. They will look at you as a crazy American. But if you drive or fly a long distance, you can always find a place where brothers and sisters in Christ will love you and care for you to the ends of the earth You don't even have to speak their language and you share something in common with them that you don't share with a physical family. This is a supernatural, global community that cannot be replaced in your life as a follower of Jesus. And so we are persecuted because he was persecuted. We are divided in our family Because he was divided in his family. But I love the the conclusion of this in verses 40 and 42. Where Jesus gives this, this beautiful glimpse of hope. He says, whoever receives you will receive me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet... Uh, The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is the righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. How comforting is this? Jesus is just like blown the minds of his apostles talking about your brothers and your family are going to hate you and, and, and you're going to go to prison and, and they may kill you. But then in the end, he wraps it up with this glimmer of hope, the power of the gospel, that God's at work, that there will be people that will receive you, that there will be people that as you go from house to house, house will welcome you. It's the, it's the sovereignty of God on display that there they are being reminded as 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 I'm closing out my sermon to you instructing you on your call that whoever receives you receives me what a glorious truth what, a, what an amazing thought to have This prophet's reward that these people would receive. This righteous person's reward that a person would receive. This is the truth of God. This is not financial blessing. This is basically saying that as you go out, people will receive you. And they receive you because I have drawn them to myself. They understand and they align with your understanding and and the things that you're saying and the things that you're preaching. And so they receive you, as Jesus is saying, because I've done the work. And the reward that they're getting is is not physical monetary gifts. They're receiving. They are receiving God. And so the hope here as the work that we do and the faithfulness that we uh, um, participate in with the the ministry that God's called us to do, that it will not return back to us void. That God is going to do his work. And we may not see a a, a revival that that some people consider worthy of the church where three or four or 5,000 people are saved. We may not ever see this in this church but we can trust that the word of God will be faithful to do the work in the lives of the people that God has sent us and that that is worthy of us coming and gathering and being a part of each other's lives and trusting that God's will will be done. We don't measure ourselves based upon how many people are in that water or how many children are in that room. We measure ourselves based upon the work of God, the the conviction of sin, the, the drawing of the Holy Spirit of people to salvation. We measure it based upon how God is working and sometimes we don't ever even see it. But we trust he's doing it because we're being faithful or attempting to be faithful to the word that he's given us and to this church that he's given us. And so, in essence, the disciples are finding reception and not total rejection. So let that be a call for us as we go out. Let that be a challenge for us, that it will be worth it. Even in your life, if you lead one person to Christ, and week after week and month after month, you invest in the person's life that comes to know Jesus. You spend time with them. You explain God's word. You grow. You pray. You are producing fruit for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it brings honor and glory to him. And you know what? If you're put in prison and for the rest of your life you rot away in a prison in the middle of Southeast Asia and there's one person that you get to talk to and you lead that one person to Christ, don't think that your life is worthless because God has used you to do amazing things with what he's given you. Let's just be faithful in the midst of Christ-centered rejection.